It's great to be back at uh, First Christian Monmouth. It's been about a year. Uh, I, my name is Jared Walker. I'm originally from La Harpe, Illinois, and uh, went to college in Missouri, Central Christian College of the Bible, Moberly, Missouri. When I was, while I was there as a student, met another student, beautiful redhead named Joanne. She was from Wisconsin, and one of our first dates, I said, Joanne, I just, I just need you to know if this goes anywhere, I, I just can't ever live in Wisconsin. Uh, good news is I've only lived in Wisconsin 21 years. That's kind of how that works out. Uh, currently live in the Milwaukee suburbs because in 2011, we helped start a church in Menominee Falls, and uh, now for the last five years have been full-time with CFR, Christian Financial Resources. CFR was started in 1980 in Florida, originally to help Christian churches in Florida. We now help churches all across the U.S., but a church extension fund provides loans to churches so they can purchase land or build buildings or remodel existing space. And to date, it's hard to get your head around this number, but to date we have funded about $1.2 billion in church loans over the last 43 years. Couple of fun facts being here in West Central Illinois. So we were started in Florida. It was really 2011 that we went national with an exception of uh, three churches that we did loans with in the 90s. Two of them were in Illinois. One of them was in Galesburg, New Community Christian Church, a church plant in Galesburg. We provided a loan for them back in the 90s. Because of how long we were in Florida only, that's our largest state in terms of loan dollars deployed, but our second largest state in the U.S. right now is Illinois. So CFR has a long history, a lot of churches that we have been able to partner with, and people often ask, how is it that you are able to fund all of those loans to churches? We operate as a nonprofit. We're able to keep our overhead low, keep uh, the cost low to churches, and try to keep the interest rate low on loans, but where do we come up with the dollars to be able to loan? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple, pretty straightforward. When you look in Scripture at Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at it a little bit during the message today, but we read there that there was no one in need among the early church. Why? They shared the resources that they had. And that's how CFR works. We have been able to make loans to all of the churches that we have through the years because of individuals like you and me families, Christian business owners, churches, other organizations that invest dollars at CFR. And while those dollars are at CFR, you get a good rate of return, but you also know they're not being put in the stock market. We're not using them to buy mutual funds. They're being used to make loans to churches across the U.S. So in the chair pocket in front of you or on the table in front of you, there's a brochure like this. If you open it up, you can see the rates that are available. That includes our ready access. That makes great sense for your emergency fund. You can connect it to a checking account, move money back and forth, no penalties, no time commitments. Uh, online access, you can manage all of that. Great place for emergency fund. Then we have time certificates where you can lock in a higher rate. Maybe you set, set up some uh, savings over time. That includes an old retirement uh, plan, maybe an IRA or 401k from a, a previous employer. You can roll that into an IRA at CFR and get a good rate of return. We offer giving funds. They're donor-advised funds, sort of like charitable checking accounts that come with some significant tax advantages when it comes to supporting the, the church and charities that you love. There is one uh, 
promotional rate that is not in that brochure, but I have a little card like this on my table. It's a very limited time thing that we're just doing until April 28th. It's a 5.5% 15-month certificate. So if you're interested in that, you can get that at the table that I have out there, along with a packet like this that has everything that you need if you want to get started. Again, I tell our investors you get a double blessing when you invest at CFR. One is a good rate of return, but the other is you know every dollar is being used to help churches. Well, you have been in a series, a year-ish with Jesus. I told Jordan I love that title. Uh, I actually was here New Year's Day. We were traveling through. I'd uh, spent, um, I guess maybe it was, the, was it, was January 1st a Sunday or January 2nd? It was that weekend because I, we celebrated Christmas late with my grandparents who live in Wesley Village in Macomb. And as part of traveling back home, uh, we started our journey home with church here with you all. So I heard about the series then, and uh, in talking with Jordan, he said, you know what, I'm going to be gone in April on a Sunday. Would you be willing to speak then? And he said, and I think the text uh, would be right up your alley since you're kind of a finance money guy because of where we're going to be in Matthew, the book of Matthew at that time. So Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to start today. Matthew chapter 6, we find some words of Jesus. We're going to pick up in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That last sentence is pretty profound, pretty significant. You cannot serve both God and money. And it's funny, money is sometimes an awkward thing to talk about, uh, especially so in a, a church setting. For me personally, it's an area where I have had to grow a lot in my journey of following Jesus. Learning what it looks like to serve God rather than money, it's not easy. And so for the next few minutes, I want to be open and vulnerable a little bit about sharing my own journey. And let me say up front that if, if anything I say today sounds like, look what I've done, look where I've, uh, how, how much I've accomplished in this area, Please forgive me because that is not my intent. My intent is to try and show you how I've had to learn, sometimes the hard way, in my own generosity journey. I've seen how God has used experiences in my life, people in my life to move me further along in the journey. And I think he knows I'm pretty simple because God has tended to move me in my generosity journey, not by leaps and bounds, but by small steps along the way. I think he understands if he gets too far in front of me, I'll, I'll get lost. And so he's moved me kind of step by step through my own journey. So I just want to share with you today my own generosity journey. And along that journey, I have been continually surprised about how God has brought those experiences and people in my life to move me further along in that journey. I've titled today's message, A Tale of Two Shoes. Probably more accurately, it would be A Tale of Two Pairs of Shoes. But the story of the first pair of shoes involves something that I experienced the summer after I graduated from high school. 
I mentioned I grew up in La Harpe, Illinois. My home church is Burnside Christian Church, Burnside, Illinois. Had an opportunity to go to Haiti with a missionary the summer after I graduated from high school. When I was there, I met a young man named Michel. Michel and I worked together um, on some projects there for the mission that I was visiting in Haiti. And at one point, uh, when it was just Michel and I walking across a field, Michel very boldly, uh, no hesitation, asked me if he could have my shoes. I mean, we were walking across the field. I was kind of wearing them in the moment. I was using them at that time. Uh, and, and I answered honestly. I said, uh, Michel, I... I plan on wearing these home. No hesitation, Michel said, I think you have more shoes at home. And he was right. And I realized at that moment that to Michel, the fact that I had more shoes than I could wear at any given time made me rich. You know, according to the How Rich Am I calculator created by a group of people, an organization called Giving What We Can, they have a calculator on their website, a household of four people, two adults, two children, with take-home annual income, so that's after taxes, of $24,000 a year in the U.S. So family of four, take-home of $24,000 a year in the U.S., you are in the top 25% of wage earners in the world at that level. To 75% of the world, you are rich if a family, you as a family of four take home more than $24,000 a year. Well, that day I didn't give Michel my shoes. And I've always thought since then that probably said to Michel, not only am I a rich American because of all the shoes that I own, I'm a greedy rich American because I didn't give him my shoes when I had others at home. That's the story of the first pair of shoes, and I'd like to think God has taught me a few things about generosity since then. And looking back at my own journey, I, I would have to say it really starts at home with my parents and the example that they set for me. They were generous. As I mentioned, we were involved in Birdside Christian Church. Uh, when it came to giving to the church, they looked at the Old Testament example, and they followed that example. They were what we call tithers, uh, as long as I can remember, to tithe means to give 10%. Literally, that's what tithe means is one-tenth, and they did that. I saw that. I wanted to follow their example in that. It sounded great. Then I got my first job. I had to try and live it out. Now, in the small town of La Harpe, Illinois, there weren't a whole lot of employment opportunities for high school kids back then, even fewer today, but we did have a grocery store in town, Fisher's Jack and Jill, Right? Uh, I think there was one in Roseville. Uh, uh, not Roseville, Stronghurst, I think is actually where they, where they started. Um, I found a photo a few years ago of what the building looked like. It's not a grocery store anymore, kind of a storage building for somebody, but I got a job there. My first job, I started getting a paycheck as a 16-year-old there working at the grocery store. As I said, I wanted to follow my parents' example wanted to, to be a tither. I wanted to give 10%. But man, all of a sudden, when you now have that money and then you have to give it up, it was, it was kind of hard. I discovered generosity isn't always easy. How many of you have seen those pharmaceutical com commercials that talk about you know, some kind of dysfunction and we have a pill that can help with that? Seems like we can take a pill for just about anything. What if we could 
take a pill that would help us with our generosity. Some friends in a church in Michigan had a little fun with that idea and came up with this video. Well, unfortunately, as a 16-year-old struggling with generosity, getting a prescription to give Alice wasn't an option. So I had to learn, how am I going to put this into practice? And again, I was 16 years old. I had twin cousins who were 17, and they had pooled their money, and they had bought their first car. It was a 1975 Monte Carlo, black. If you remember that model year, it had the, the fins that went out over the headlights. It was a gas guzzler. It was a beast, but it was beautiful from the outside. Now, on the inside, the floorboard was rotted out. If you went through a puddle and you're sitting in the back seat, your feet got wet. But I, I remember them bombing the strip for hours on Main Street in La Harpe, and every time they had a few dollars, it went into that gas tank, or they'd save up toward a new stereo or whatever. So I knew it was going to be very easy to just spend that but I wanted to make sure that I was generous with it as well. Well, thankfully, <clears throat> at the same intersection where the grocery store was, was also First State Bank of Western Illinois. It was called then. I don't know what it's called today, but uh, that bank was right across the corner. So when I would get my paycheck from Fisher's Jack and Jill, I would directly walk across the street and I chose not to have a checking account at the bank because I knew if I could write a check for it, it would be too easy to spend it. We didn't have debit cards, thankfully, back then because that's really easy to spend, right? So I chose to keep it in a savings account because it would be harder to get to if I had to go to the bank to get it. Very strange teenager. I wanted to save toward college. So 80% of every paycheck went into my savings account at the bank. 10% I kept to spend and 10% I took as cash when I would deposit my check to give to my church. And that was the first thing I learned in my journey of generosity. That was the value of scheduling. See, from my parents, I'd learned that practice of tithing, but if I was going to be consistent in that, from the beginning I learned the importance of scheduling. In fact, our families continue to do that. Today it looks a little bit different. Today it's online bill pay that we use to automate it. Like I do other important things. I don't want to forget the mortgage, so I have that paid automatically every month. I do the same thing with my giving to my church. 
I set a schedule and stick to it. And you know, that's what Paul encouraged the early church to do. In his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. On Sunday, the first day of every week, according to a proportion of your income, set it aside, collect it each week. Then when I come, it's ready, ready to go. So that was one of the first things I learned in my generosity journey, scheduling. Fast forward a few years, the age of 19, I mentioned I was a college student at Central Christian College of the Bible in Moberly, Missouri. At the age of 19, I became the preacher of a little country church in Bosworth, Missouri. Really unique, older building. Had a bit of a dilemma in that first ministry, though. I I don't know why, but it seemed kind of weird, this transaction that would sort of happen on Sunday. They would pay me a stipend for being their preacher. I worked a couple of other jobs most of the time working my way through college, and so I would also be putting a check in the offering, and so it just seemed weird. They were giving me a check. I was giving them a check. I don't know. It just, it just kind of felt funny, that transaction, and so what I started doing, I, I wanted to be consistent with that 10% every week setting aside, but I would keep it in an envelope until it had accumulated a little bit, and then I would buy something that I thought the church needed. For example, there was an amazing piece of technology available to churches and schools at that time, an overhead projector. Do you remember those amazing machines? I mean, you could write on it and it would show it on the wall, right? And then you could lick your finger and erase it if you had done it wrong, right? There were things called inkjet printers. You could print on an inkjet transparency and put it on there. I could have my sermon notes for people to see. We could do songs that weren't in the hymnal because we could print the words out and put them on this thing. I mean, amazing piece of technology. So I bought an overhead projector for Bosworth Christian Church. A Couple years later, I was at another church uh, as I completed my last couple of years of college was Gifford Christian Church. Bought them an overhead projector as well. Also, that church, though it was located just off of a major highway or a significant highway, It set back far enough that you could drive by without realizing it was there. So I used some of the money I'd set aside to pay for a church sign. We had a church sign installed, and according to Google Street View a few years ago, that sign was still there. I don't know if the church is, but the sign is still there along the side of the road. Well, as I practiced that for a few years, I started to struggle a little bit with it. One struggle was just a a practical problem. I realized I was basically funding my pet projects for the church, the things I I cared about. And I thought, what if everybody in the church did that? There's certain things that probably nobody would be passionate. Like, who wants to be the one to buy the toilet paper for the church or pay the electric bill? I mean, everybody, everybody wants to do the fun stuff, right? And so I thought, well, that's just not very practical for the church if everybody practiced generosity that way. But the, the second issue was really a bigger one. It was a spiritual issue. And what I realized was I was controlling my giving. I was only giving part way. If, if you're controlling your giving, are you really giving it away? There wasn't any accountability with that. I wasn't surrendering it to anyone. I was taking charge of what happened with those funds. I was still giving what I committed to, but I was controlling it as I gave it. And so that next step in my generosity journey was learning about surrender. Surrender. 
moving from scheduling to surrender. I mean, as a follower of Jesus, my life is supposed to be about surrendering everything to God, right? And yet I was holding back a little bit when it came to my generosity. The early church went through a similar growth experience in their generosity. In Acts chapter 2, we read that the church was generous, and here's what it looks like, beginning in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So we see that they were generous. They sold what they had. They gave directly to those who had need. A couple of chapters later in Acts, we see very similar wording and yet a bit of a difference. Let's take a look. This was the passage I talked about earlier. No one in need among them. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in uh, in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, like they were doing in Acts 2, But then what do they do after they sell here? They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So now there's an element of surrender. They're no longer selling and then giving directly to people in need. They're selling and then bringing it to the the apostles, the church leaders, for them to distribute to those who were in need. That surrender was a part of their generosity journey as it was in mine. Well, after I graduated from college, remember, I told my Wisconsin native wife we were not going to live in Wisconsin, so we went the other direction. We went to New Mexico, just a little bit different climate than Wisconsin, and served in a church there in Artesia, New Mexico, for three and a half years. And while I was there, I met someone who challenged me a bit in my understanding of generosity. See, up until that point, I understood as I give 10% and I keep 90. 90 is mine. 10 I give. Well, a man by the name of Ron Beatonbow challenged that a little bit. His story is pretty amazing. Very quickly, Ron became a wealthy man and even more quickly lost it all, had to declare bankruptcy, found himself having to start over. And when he started over, he decided doing it his way didn't work. He decided whatever he did from there, it was not going to be for him, it was going to be for God. I got to meet Ron and some of his family, and encountering them impacted me greatly. See, Ron and his family decided to build a home-building business, Beatonbow Quality Homes. It quickly grew to be one of the largest home builders in West Texas. By the time they built their 5,000th home, their company had given away nearly $24 million to Christian ministries around the world. You see, from my first job, I learned scheduling. From my first ministries, I learned surrender. But from Ron Beatonbow, I learned about the idea of stewardship. Stewardship. That's the biblical idea that everything I own, not just what I choose to give away, but everything I own comes from God and is his. I'm just a manager, a steward. That's where stewardship comes from, that term. I'm just a steward or manager of what he has entrusted to me. And Ron did that with everything he had. His entire business, he would tell anyone, like he told me, was not his. 
It all belonged to God. In fact, he said to me, when I did things my way, I made a lot of money and I lost it. So I decided if I started another company, it wasn't going to be mine, it was going to be God's, all of it. I was just going to manage it for him. And that's a biblical idea. Look at what Paul wrote, again to the church at Corinth, this time in chapter three of 1 Corinthians. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. We are his. All that we have, he entrusts to us to manage for him, to honor him with it. Ron and his family live that out, and they have now committed to helping other business owners live that out as well. Well, the next jump in my spiritual journey, if you will, the next learning opportunity, growing opportunity in my generosity journey, came when Ron introduced me to another individual, another pastor. His name was Doug Laird. Doug was 75 years old when I met him. And he used one story in the Bible to take me to a new place in my generosity journey, a well-known story that we often refer to as the widow's mite. We find it in Luke 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, up until my encounter with Doug Laird, my understanding of this passage or the point of what Jesus was saying here was, was maybe it doesn't matter how much you give, just give what you can. That was, that was kind of my understanding. But what Doug showed me was if it's about giving what you can, the widow shouldn't have given anything at all. She had two coins to live on. She couldn't give anything, but she did anyway. The difference between the gifts was not the dollar amount, but the sacrifice. The sacrifice. In fact, there was a phrase that Doug taught me, not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. And I realized I'd not have had to sacrifice a lot in my generosity journey because from that very first job, I had always said we're going to give 10%. And when we got married, my wife, that was her perspective as well. So that's what we had always done. We had never had to sit down and say, what are we going to give up in order for us to be generous? We hadn't experienced that kind of sacrifice, and I realized I was missing out a piece on a piece of my generosity journey because of that. And so I, I moved in my journey from stewardship to sacrifice. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. In other words, as followers of Jesus, we've not all been entrusted the same resources to be able to give the same amount, but we're all called equally to sacrifice. And that's when I realized if I'm not giving something up in order to be generous, am I really giving at all? And so again, just transparency, Joanne and I moved to a spot in our generosity journey where we were giving then 15% of our income to, to the local church because that's just where we had grown to in the journey. And again, I thought, yes, we're there. This is my generosity plan. This is what it looks like for the rest of my life. But then we did a generosity initiative at the, the church that we had helped to start in Menominee Falls. 
and we called it Stretch. It wasn't my first generosity campaign as a pastor, but in that, we asked everyone in the church to pray, God, what would it look like for me to stretch beyond ordinary to attempt something really big for you? And I found myself wrestling with God about what it would look like to stretch beyond stewardship, even beyond sacrifice, to where generosity became a much more personal thing. And I started to wrestle with the difference between something that maybe doesn't seem like a big deal, but at the time for me it was. The difference between doing acts of generosity and being generous. One is what I do, the other is who I am. And I felt that I needed to move from doing where generosity is defined by specific accident to where this is simply a part of who I am. It flows out of me as a generous person. And so as part of that one decision that I decided to make as I, I looked at my closet, I thought back to Michelle and people in the world that, that because I have more than one pair of shoes in my closet, I'm rich to them. And I looked and I thought, I, not only do I have more shoes than I can wear at any time in my closet, I have more pairs of pants that I can wear at any time, more shirts that I can wear at any time. And I, I don't know if other guys are like me, I tend to hold on to clothes forever. Like it's a perfectly good shirt. Uh, you know, I, I probably have 73 mowing outfits, right? Cause like it's perfectly good for me. There's nothing wrong with that, it's a good shirt. My wife says you've had it since high school. That's how good it is, it's still held up since high school. I have to shop our own garage sales before people show up to get my clothes back that she's trying to get rid of. Those are perfectly good pants. Jared, they're burgundy. So what? They're good Saturday around the house pants. Anyway, I, I had a lot of clothes, right? Didn't mean that all of them fit me because I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't have the same figure today as I did in high school. And at the time we did this, I was a bigger guy than I am now. And so um, some of the clothes I had in my closet didn't fit. And I thought I'd found the solution. Before I started it, I got this miracle thing that was going to take care of it. The, the InstaTrim shirt. Um, well, first off, it's a lie. Okay. It did not take me from a 2X to a medium to the shirts that I had from high school. Secondly, it is almost impossible to wriggle into that thing. But once you're in it, you ain't getting out. I thought I was gonna have to call 911, ask for the jaws of life to get me out of that thing once I wore it. Through that experience, I, I committed for one year to not buy a single new article of clothing. For one year, if I had a, a, a sock get a hole in it, if a pair of shoes wore out, a shirt ripped, I, I wasn't gonna replace it for a year. And I never, in that year, felt like I struggled with not having enough clothing-wise. And I, I came to realize our definition of rich is very wrong. In fact, a study was done where they asked people at different income levels how they would define rich. And almost across the board, no one defined themselves as rich. And then they also asked them, what level of income would you consider rich? And it was pretty consistent that it was like two tiers. They had broken it into categories, about two tiers above where you currently were. So if I made 30,000, I thought those that made 60,000 were rich. But those who made 60,000, guess what? They didn't think they were rich. It was those who made 100,000 that were rich and so on. And here's what we find over time. Rich is a moving target that we keep redefining. 
Go back and tell 16-year-old you your salary right now. See if they wouldn't fall over thinking you are rich. But it's always a moving target. We always see someone who has more than us, and that must be rich, and we're not there. So I came across a new definition of rich that I've clung to since then. Rich is having more than you need. That's a definition that Michelle in Haiti would agree with. You have more than you need, you're rich. Honestly, another point in my generosity journey, I thought I'd arrived. Had an experience that even seemed to validate that. This is where the second pair of shoes comes in. Had an opportunity to attend a conference in Colorado. Another pastor from the Milwaukee area uh, went with me. We decided to attend this conference together. We got out there a little bit early, and so we were spending some time one afternoon, downtown Boulder, Colorado, uh, reading, working on sermon prep, and we were sitting on one bench. On the bench next to us was a homeless man, and I couldn't help but continue to, to find myself distracted by the, the homeless man there. He was very still, sleeping, but I, I kept noticing his feet. The boots that he was wearing, the soles had become detached except at the toe, so the soles were hanging off of his boots, I could see his bare heel and the ball of his foot also bare because the sock had worn through. And I thought about the shoes that I hadn't given to Michelle. And I thought I could give my shoes to this man, but then what will I wear? And then I remembered I had some flip-flops in the trunk of the, car, the rental car there in Colorado. And so I took off my shoes and gave them to the homeless man, and then I went to the car and got my flip-flops, and I thought to myself, this time I passed. The shoes test, I passed it this time. I failed it with Michelle, but this time I gave them away. And then something happened that reminded me that I'm in this next season of my generosity journey, and that's this. From this whole journey, I've learned that God is continually calling me to reach higher. Every time I think I've arrived in this generosity journey, God reminds me that I've got so much to learn. And here's how I realized it through the story of the second pair of shoes. A few weeks after we were back from Colorado, my pastor friend Brian sent me a photo via email a photo that he had taken of me giving my shoes to this man. And he said, I didn't want to cheapen the moment by telling you that I'd taken a photo. Wanted to give you a few weeks, but then he said, I thought maybe you could use this photo to inspire generosity in others. And so I saw it and I thought, oh, that is so cool. Again, I passed the test and we got it on, we got a photo of it. But then I realized the moment that Brian had captured. It's kind of hard to tell from the photo, but you can see I'm, I'm kneeling down. Homeless man is there on the, the bench. I've got something in my right hand. It's, it's, there's some orange to it, if you can see that much detail. Before I gave the man my shoes, I took out the cushioned inserts that I had bought to make them more comfortable. 
even when I think I pass the test and give the shoes away, I still prove I'm greedy. I still held back. My prayer for you today is this. I never would have experienced the journey that I have experienced and that I'm still on, clearly, still growing in, had it not been for people who challenged me, people that I allowed to speak into my life and make me a little bit uncomfortable with where I was at with my own generosity. And sometimes we get uncomfortable when people try to speak into our lives about that. But, but I don't anymore. And it's not just that area. It's any area of our journey as followers of Jesus, whether it's our prayer life, whether it's our Bible study habits, whether it's how well we relate Jesus to the, the people in our lives who don't know him. I don't want any of us to be at the spot where we feel like we've arrived. Because just ask the person next to you if you are at the point that you are just like Jesus and they will tell you how you're not, right? Probably every area of our lives where we are trying to follow Jesus better, we still have a ways to go. We still have growing to do. And so it is my prayer that we all recognize that God is continually calling us to reach higher in all of those areas, including our generosity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a challenge, a challenge from some places in your word when it comes to our generosity and our own journeys. Father, thank you for the people that you allowed to speak into my life over the years to challenge me. Father, I pray that every one of us is, is ready to be shown by you through your Holy Spirit working in the people around us where we need to grow to be more like Jesus. Father, help us to be open to hear that, ready to act. And may we never reach the spot that we've arrived where we feel like we've arrived, recognizing that that day comes in eternity with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.